I have been looking forward to this one for a long time, so come on in. Welcome, welcome. Um, you're going to need a copy of these notes on the Gospel of John. Does anybody not raise got them, passing them out here? Dan's got them up here. Folks back in the corner, guys. So you're going to want to grab one of these. Oh, and I always forget. I don't know why I always forget this. Joe, could I ask you to do me a favor? Could you just run into that closet and grab that like accordion folder that you'll find on the table there? So you guys, if, you're, if you haven't been here, or if you've kind of been in and out, we're about halfway through a series of summaries on the books of the New Testament. So we're taking one book a week, and we're talking about what is that, what's the, you know, what's the big argument, what's the main things to look for in that book. Joe, thank you so much. Um, and the reason we're doing it is that we really want to encourage you and help you to read these books and understand them. My goal is in giving you these sheets and having these conversations is to kind of make it so the next time you read John, it's more like the fifth or sixth time you've read John. Because you've, got, you've kind of learned a bunch of stuff that you're looking for and recognizing and you're going through. Um, and because I really, the goal here is not just to give you the summary so you don't have to read it, but to give you the summary so that as you read it, it'll, it'll come forward and be alive to you in, in richer and more accessible ways. And typically, we do one book a week. Uh, you know, we'll do 1 Corinthians one week or 2 Peter in one week. But we gave two weeks to Romans because it's the most important thing that's ever been written. And we're going to give two weeks to John because it's second only to Romans. I love this book. It's incredibly important. And so my goal here, today we're going to walk through John's gospel. Uh, and then, hopefully, many of you will read it this week. And if you haven't been in the habit, or you have been in the habit, or wherever you're at, um, you could read John this week. It's, it's 21 chapters. And so you could read 21 chapters in seven days at the low, low rate of three chapters a day. And then we're going to talk about John again next week. So we'll cover some of the stuff. Well, I'm not sure how much. We'll see where it goes. But we're going to cover some of the things here in this kind of summary that we have. Um, and then you guys can read it over the week, and then we're going to do it again. We're going to have a John sandwich. And so next week, I'll have a few more things that I would like to share. Um, but I'm really going to be interested next week to hear what you noticed as you read it. as you read it yourself this week, um, and we'll, we'll share a few more insights. So um, before I walk you through kind of my, my, the way that I would frame it and the things that I would think would be useful to look for, um, I'd love to hear from you guys. What are some of your favorite things about John or the most important insights about John or things you've noticed? Um, you get to go first, and then I'll try to clean up in a few minutes. So John, which, give me some of your favorite thoughts about John. Gil? <laughs> In the beginning. Okay, so John's prologue is deeply loved. He begins with the words, in the beginning, which is a very obvious homage to what? Creation. Creation. It's Genesis. So Genesis 1-1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John begins, in the beginning, how does it go? Was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was with God in the beginning. And that opening couple of paragraphs of John, we call it the prologue, it's brilliant and it's poetic, and he's, and he's like peering through all of time. Other Gospels begin, uh, more kind of begin their story at Jesus' birth. But John does not include a birth narrative for Jesus. He starts his story, he anchors his story before the beginning of time. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, the Logos. He was with God and he was God. So John is not content to anchor this thing at Christmas. He's anchoring it before the foundations of the world. 
All right, so very good. Other big things from John that you remember or that you love? Yeah, Chris. Okay, so Chris, who has his mouth full of food right now, says that Jesus is God. This is absolutely the case. So we've, we've said that each of the four Gospels has a particular portrait that they're trying to paint of Christ. Matthew shows Christ as king. Mark shows Christ as servant. Luke shows Jesus as a human being. And John, unmistakably, his primary focus here is that Jesus is God. We're going to talk about that a lot this morning. It's, we don't, I'm not sure if we even get past that. John is very interested in persuading us that Jesus is God. Absolutely. Jennifer? John 3.16. Okay, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, most well-known, most well-quoted verse. And there's a reason. I'll explain to you why I think it's so quoted. It's John 3.16. You want to, well, you don't have the microphone, right? John, did, who ha, you, I won't make you do it. Who has John 3.16 memorized? Probably, don't you think probably the most memorized verse in the Bible, right? God so loved the world, the gate of his only begotten son, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, right? Super, super well known. It is one of the most apt little pithy summaries of the gospel message, for sure. John, what are your biggies from John? Suzanne? John's relationship with Christ. Okay, yeah. What do you know about that? Right. So. Loving relationship. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a funny thing. So we, we call this the Gospel of John, but John never identifies himself in this Gospel. He's never, he's never mentioned in this Gospel by name. Instead, whenever, whenever he refers to some person, he always calls him the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we have concluded he's talking about himself, right? And it's funny because at, at some point in my own like, you know, journey through the Scriptures, that struck me as a little bit cocky. You know, like have you ever seen the, the buttons that say like, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite, right? And the, that's kind of the vibe of John is that, that it's a flex that he is the one that Jesus loves. But I don't think that anymore. I think that if I asked most of you, tell me about yourself, you would say, well, I work at such and such a place, or I have thus and many kids, or this is my spouse, or this is, you know, you, you have some sense of yourself. And like, it's probably your family, it's probably your job, it's one of these things that is your, your self-identity. But if you ask John about John, hey, tell me about you. What's, what do you, what's important about you? What would you like me to know about you? And John's reflective response is, Jesus loves me. It is the centerpiece of his identity, is that he is loved by this person who really was his best friend. John was... Jesus has the, you know, there's all of humanity, right? But then he's got this particular 12. And then within the 12, there was this particular three, Peter, James, and John. And John is one of that inner circle. And he just could never get over the fact that Jesus picked him, that he loved him. And so he, he writes from, from an incredible posture of warmth and affection. He loves Jesus. So, yeah. Yes. His beloved... Uh, John, being the beloved disciple, appears only after the raising of Lazarus. This, yeah, okay. I mean, I have a suspicion that Lazarus did so much love before he was resurrected. John. You think, oh, you think that Lazarus and John is the same person? Huh, okay, well, I would say that's interesting. It's true that the phrase. Um, the disciple whom Jesus loved doesn't occur in the first half of the book. The book does divide in two halves, and that Lazarus' death is 
the climax of Act One, right? And I'll, I'll get to it. I'll, I'll, I'll try to show you how that frames out. Um, I've never heard the speculation that, that John and Lazarus are the same person. That's interesting, um, but I don't think it's possible because John is the, one of the sons of Zebedee. His brother is uh, James. James and John are brothers. And then Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. I've never heard speculation that that's all one big family. Um, but I do think it's true. It's, you're, you're right on the fact that his, he doesn't begin to call himself, or he doesn't, that, that phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, only occurs in the second half of the book. That's so. Ellen, do you want to add something? Yes. Um, what John's purpose in writing this gospel. Yes, so clear. People would believe. Yes. And even us now, believing we would have life in his name. Yes. I think that he was very protective of that going forward, that Jesus would be believed and that people would know. Yes. So John is always very explicit in what he's doing. If you read 1 John, so John wrote, there's five books in the New Testament that are by the same guy. There's the gospel, the biography of Jesus. Then we have three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They're letters that he wrote, you know, to the early church, and then we get Revelation. And when he writes 1st John, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life, okay? He's telling you, this is why I wrote the book. In John's gospel, he does the exact same thing. It's in the very end of chapter 20. I actually have it for you at the top of the front page. He says, well, look at it here. He says, Jesus did, uh, I said, Jesus, John is explicit in his purpose for writing. Quote, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's very, very straightforward. This is what I'm doing. I'm writing you a persuasive paper so that you will become convinced that my best friend is Messiah and God, so that you will believe in him and be able to live forever. So, let's get going. I mean, that's, that's, what, he, that's what the whole letter is. The whole thing is this, is he's trying to write a persuasive case. And we'll, we'll unpack some of those elements here as we go through. Okay, one more, and then we'll get started. And I'll tell you some of the stuff I want you to see. Chris. I'm not sure if you're going to speak on it much, but just the fact that it's the latest gospel, like maybe 50 years after Christ's ministry. Yeah. Like, seems, I don't know, like, who's he trying to scrape off that hasn't already been reflecting on the, the new church? Yes. Okay, so this is true. So we generally understand that John is probably the last living member of the 12 disciples, and his gospel is later. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all earlier. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all, they all have remarkable similarity. We call them the synoptics, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C-S, meaning that they look the same, they have the same vantage point. John is radically different from the others. Um, very different stories that he tells, very different ways that it's organized. And generally the understanding is that as John knows that his life is drawing to an end, he wanted to record the stories about his dearest friend that weren't known in the other Gospels. And so he's writing almost certainly conscious of the synoptics, but wanting to bring this other information that he knew, that he had experienced, that was true, but that wasn't captioned in those other accounts. And so it's a very personal, and it's also a very reflective account. It's later. It's written. Matthew is a little more didactic of what happened. Um, John is writing after probably years of reflection on what he had seen what he'd experienced. And so it's a little more developed theologically. So that's exactly right. Okay, Robin, you get to sneak in under the wire. 
You know, um, the road to Emmaus, how Jesus explained to the two that were walking with him what all this meant in the full picture yeah. of the Old Testament and the New, that I feel that way with jumping John's, that it's not just talking about different incidences, but it's going deeper and explaining Yeah. That's true. Robin is pointing out that in, at the end of Luke, Luke 24, there's this Emmaus walk where Jesus is walking with some kind of second-tier disciples, and it says that to them he explained all that was written in the law and the prophets concerning himself. And it is where, it's this moment where Jesus is explaining how all of the scriptures pointed to him. And John is very interested in that same theme. In fact, in John 5:24, Jesus says, um, you diligent, or is it first? It's definitely John 5. I'm not sure if it's verse 24. But in John 5, he says, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, right? J John understands that Jesus knows the whole book is about him. And John, just like the rest, and this is true among all the gospel writers, he's deeply interested in persuading us that Jesus is the fulfillment of of the Jewish prophecies. He is the one who has come. Although John is not at, though he's drawing from the Jewish prophecies, and Jesus is, of course, a Jewish person and goes to Jewish festivals and feasts and celebrations, John has a very universal appeal, right? He's not writing just to, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. John is really writing to a much more of a broad audience. Okay, so let's go through. There's a couple of things I want you to see. We're pro I don't know, we might get past the front page this morning. We'll see. But in John's gospel, um, he loves the number seven. He keeps doing things seven times. Do you guys know why that would be? Why seven? Seven is always a, a, create, a, a number of completion. There are seven days in creation. We, no, the number seven is often used symbolically. Um, he, he, there's a million sevens in Revelation. John loves putting things in sets of seven. And among the things that he does in sets of seven is uh, Jesus, when, the number of times that Jesus says, I am. This is an interesting thing. There's actually two different sets of seven I am's in John's gospel. As you read through, just watch for them, but you're going to have to watch like a hawk because the translators, bless their hearts, they try to clean it up, okay? Here's what's going on here is that in Exodus 3, when Moses is getting called to go and, you know, stand before Pharaoh, and he's like, well, what do I tell him? If Pharaoh asks me, who sent me, what do I say? And God says, you tell him that I am sent you. And when he says that word, I am, it's in Hebrew, it's Y-H-W-H. -H, it's transliterated as Y-H-W-H. -H, and it is the covenant name of God. God reveals in Exodus 3 that, is very, what, that he, is, he is, he's like, I am who I am. I am who I say I am. I am. And Yahweh becomes, Y-H-W-H, -H, I am, becomes the Jewish understanding of the very name of God. God has lots of names. He is, you know, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He is... You know, Elroy, the God who sees. He's got all these names. But it, the namiest name of all the names is Yahweh. Okay? Now, that word Yahweh, when it gets transliterated or translated, if you will, into Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses a word that simply means I am. And John has Jesus say, I am, period, seven times in his gospel. The problem is, he often will say it in ways that are grammatically awkward. And so when he does, translators have a tendency to try to make this flow in English. 
and sometimes they'll translate it a little bit differently than I am. But maybe the most famous and maybe the most important would be the one in John chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, go to John 8, and I'll show you one of these, and then you can, and I've listed them all. You can, as you read through your Bible, as you read through John, you can look for these. But this one, I, I think the one in John 8 is probably the most pointed and the most obvious, and it's one that they don't, that the translators uh, tend to not kind of clean up, which I really appreciate. So we'll pick it up in John 8, 52. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. They're saying this to Jesus, bad idea. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your, your, as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. And then listen to this. Listen to what he's saying. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And in verse 57, they say, you're not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus answers, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, grammatically, that's weird, right? He should have said, before Abraham, if, if all he's trying to say is that he's existed before Abraham, then properly he should have said, before Abraham was born, I was. He should, be, he should simply say, hey, I existed before Abraham, so everybody calm down, okay? But of course, that wouldn't calm them down. But he doesn't say, before Abraham was born, I was. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. This is one of the seven instances where Jesus is taking the covenant name of God as Yahweh and saying, that is me. I am the I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant because look at their response to it. I tell you the truth, verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why specifically did they pick up rocks to stone him? It was blasphemy. What was blasphemous about that? To claim to be God. They perfectly understood what he was saying. When he says, I am, it's not just that he's got bad grammar, okay? He is intentionally claiming to be. And I listed all these for you. There's a whole bunch of these. When he says, I who speak to you am he, what he says is, I who speak to you, I am. Same thing as when he says, it is I, don't be afraid. Well, that's not really what he said. What he said is, I am, don't be afraid. Seven times. And John is pointing out over and over and over again that Jesus is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be God. Some people have, have, have really questioned, like, in fact, it's one of the massive questions in, in like, world history is not, not only is Jesus God, but did Jesus really even think he was God? Did he claim to be God? And I think when I was a younger Christian, I thought that that was a reasonable question. Well, did he or didn't he? And today I'm like, what do you think he was saying? Like, my goodness. Like, it is the most obvious thing in the world. Yes, Jesus Christ of Nazareth absolutely thought he was God, without question. 
Now, C.S. Lewis does something fascinating with this. He's actually borrowing from a um, uh, super old guy, Augustine. Um, but he says, basically, when Jesus claims to be God, there's only two options. Either he was or he wasn't. And if he was, then he is, and bend the knee. If he wasn't, then either he didn't know it or he did know it. Meaning, either he knew he wasn't God and he was lying, or he didn't know he was, wasn't God because he was crazy. And that's the whole map. He is Lord, he is liar, he is lunatic. Pick. That's the whole menu. This man absolutely claimed to be God. He says over and over and over again, Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. That's what he's doing. And that's not the only case. We'll look, we'll look at other things, okay? My favorite version, though, of this, of all the seven times and he just drops Yahweh, the best one, the, I think the most clear and maybe the most important is the one in John 8 when he says, before Abraham was born, I am. But the best one is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So grab, grab your Bibles, flip, flip back here, and let's see, you can just kind of tab a whole bunch of times. Go up to chapter 18 and watch this. This is so brilliant, okay? In John 18, verse 2, this is, uh, he, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be crucified. He's about to be arrested. And in ways that are very surprising, like he surrenders to it, right? They come with clubs. Like, it's, do you really think, I mean, it's just crazy that you think you don't need a club because it's going to go voluntarily. But if you did need a club, you would need a lot more than a club, right? So they come to him in 18.2. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. And do you know what happens? They hit the ground. Look at it. Verse 6. And when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you realize what's happening here? Like, they come to get him. There's like a bunch of soldiers with, you know, torches and swords and clubs. And then there's Jesus wearing a robe. And, they, and he says, who are you looking for? And they, get, and they say, Jesus. And he just pulls back the veil. This is like Superman, like unbuttons his shirt. You can start to see the S. And they, he, just say, he says, Yahweh. And as soon as he pulls back the curtain, they fall to the ground. It's a very strange response. Like, why did they fall? All, all he said was, yo, right? That's all that happened. But as soon as he reveals, is something happened there? more than just the words. It was the revelation of the eternal God. And when it happens, they hit the ground. At which point, Jesus rather cheekily says, I'm sorry, who was it you were looking for? (laughs) And again, he asked them, who do you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And this time, he's a little kinder. And he says, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And it works. Isn't that incredible? John, when, when, they, when they fall down, it's because it's not just the words, I am. It is the revelation of his person. He is Yahweh. Okay? That happens seven times. As you, as you walk through John, I've got them all listed here. Watch for this. There's not only the seven I am period, but there's also seven I am this. I am the. Okay? What are, let's see if we can, without looking... What are the other seven things that Jesus says, I am the, let's try to make a list. Lamb. 
I am the light of the world. I am the door or the gate for the sheep. Oh, wait. Okay, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, so we've got, I am the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine, John 15. What are we missing? I am the good shepherd. So there's two brothers. There's the good shepherd and the, and the gate for the sheep. There's the way, the truth, and life. There's the true vine. Oh, I think there's one more that we haven't hit. We've said light of the world. We said the way, the truth, and the life. I think we haven't said I'm the living water. I think that's what we're missing. Am I wrong? Did I go? He's gonna, I'm the resurrection. Okay, look, look at your list here. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection of life, the way, the truth, and life, the, tr- the true vine. I am. What do you say? Think about these. Look at this list. Did Jesus claim to be God? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think he meant? Would Susan McQuaid ever say, stand up in this table and say, I am the light of the world? And if she did, what would you think of her? If she were to say, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you'll have no life in you. If she were to say, I am the good shepherd and you are mindful of what the Bible, what the Old Testament says about the good shepherd. If she were to stand up and say, I'm the bread of life. Like, come on. What do you think he meant? Right? There's the I am Yahweh, but there's also this outrageous self-identity. He is the superlative of all things. He is the highest point. And John's point in all of these things is to build a case, to persuade us, to make us believe that it's true that he really is the light of the world, the light of the world, the only hope of, of anything. Again, it's like, as I, thought, I used to be, that I, when I'd hear the question of, did Jesus really claim to be God? And I thought the answer was yes, but I thought it was a reasonable question. I no longer think it's a reasonable question. The other thing that I associate with this is that one of the, maybe the other huge question about Jesus is, is he really the only way? Is he really unique? Is he really particular? Mightn't there also be other ways that we can come into a relationship with God? And the longer that I've walked with him and studied his word and pondered on these things, that question strikes me as more and more absurd as well. If you think that there are alternatives to Jesus, who do you propose? Who is his rival? Like, I mean, literally, who would you even run against him who is, can contend with the light of the world, the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the good shepherd, the gate for, where are the sheep? The gate for us. Who else lived such an extraordinary life showed such unimaginable compassion under the most extreme conditions. Who else voluntarily surrendered to death? Who else conquered death, came back to life? Who else, having conquered and reigned over all things, comes to reign in kindness and gentleness and brilliance and wisdom? Like, who do you propose? What is he lacking that anyone could possibly vie with him for the position of savior of all things. This is what John is trying to say. He wants to persuade you. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God, which, he, which John means as claim to deity. 
This whole book is designed for that. So as you read through it this week, watch for those things. One more thing on the front, or two more things on the front. Titles. John gives them seven I am's, seven I am these, and he gives seven titles. Um, if you read through that prologue that Gil mentioned, you go down there, look at, look at all the things that John specifically has. Jesus identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Son of God. He is rabbi, also teacher. Same, same thing, it's just they translated as teacher. He is Messiah. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the King of Israel. He is the Son of Man. We could build up a case of what are, what are the implications of each of these. This is a, he's offering us this fully orbed vision of who he is. And then, the final thing on this front page that I want you to get is the seven signs. What, um, we, almost, we don't usually use the word sign. When John says sign, what does he mean? Miracles. miracles. This is what he means. So the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have plenty of miracles, plenty of healing. Well, will you tell me, what are some of the most famous healings in Matthew, Mark, or famous miracles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Man born blind. Okay, man born blind. Very good. Watered wine. Watered wine. Okay, though you guys are giving me, these are out of John. Okay, go Matthew, Mark. Go, go, go Matthew, Mark, and Luke first, and then we'll come back to John's. Feeding 5,000, sure. That's still going to show up in John, though. You guys, you guys are stuck in your John framework. What else is stuck? But that's also in the synoptics. Okay, there we go. That's a non-John-ish miracle. Walking on water. Okay, clearing, le- healing the lepers. Yep, we saw that just last week in, like, what, Matthew 8, I think. Very good. Wait, say it again. Okay, yes. Little, little girl, get up. Raising a little girl from the dead. Paralytic, they put down paralytic in Matthew 4, maybe ripping up the roof and going down, all that. Okay, we've got all a bunch of these. John excludes, he doesn't talk about any of those things. He gives you seven, exactly seven miracles in John's gospel, and that's it, okay? But he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. The first two, he explicitly identifies as signs, and then he kind of tapers off on that language until we kind of get to the very end of the book. What's the very first sign, according to John? At Cana, yeah, in John 2, he turns water into wine. And John says, John, John's very explicit, and he says, where's the list? He says, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Okay, why does John call the miracles signs? They're pointing their proof, yes. What is the essence of sign? Directional. Direct, okay, yes, okay. It's, it's, it's conveying information. They're not just things that happened. They weren't just compassionate acts, but they were meaningful. Because you got to remember, John, the whole book through, he's trying to persuade you. I want you to believe me so you believe in him so you get to live forever. Okay, that's the, that's the plan of this whole thing. So he sees John, you know, making water to wine, which the other synoptics didn't mention. He's like, this is where it starts. And so the case begins to build, right? And if you look here, I've got listed for you all seven of John's signs. Number one, the healing of the water, or the, the turning the water into wine. Number two, he heals um, uh, this, a man's son. Number three, he heals this paralytic. Number four is the feeding of the 5,000. Number five is John, John 9. I love the John 9 passage. That'd be a good one to linger on, is when he heals the man born blind. That's the guy that's super, super sassy, right? And then number six is the climax. And this is, a, this is an important thing to understand. When you read John's gospel, it's uh, how many chapters total? 21. 
21. Okay, so when you read it, you could, you could read it, you know, three chapters a day. That'd be a great idea. You could sit down and read it in a setting. Also not a bad idea. You could also read it in two chunks. If you read it in two chunks, stop at the end of chapter 11 because it really is the natural division of the book, okay? What we call the first half, the first 11 chapters of John is the book of signs because all of the miracles, save one, and we'll get there, are front-loaded, okay? So it's John 1 through 11, all of these signs occur here, and what's the final sign? What happens in John 11? Do you know? It's Lazarus. It's the raising of Lazarus. So we're going to see him. He's going to do all these things. That, you know, make, turning water into wine is a pretty good trick, and raising this, you know, healing this man's son, and giving sight to the, sight to the blind. All these things are all, a good, are all good things. But the climactic action at the very end of the book of signs is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this has at least two purposes, right? Number one, it is a pretty good finale, right? For the end of act one is like, and Lazarus lives, right? And so as you walk through these signs, the story is getting better and richer and more astonishing. And you have this question, who is this guy, right? The question about, John's, about Jesus's identity is foremost in Jesus's mind. And in fact, you really see that in, in John chapter nine, when he heals the man born blind, if you read, when you read through the, the man born blind, watch this, because what he's doing, the way this whole story is organized is that this entire event is supposed to spin up a controversy about the identity of Jesus. He's not just showing compassion to this man. He is showing compassion to this man at a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular way, so that there'll be a buzz. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? The whole thing is designed. Who is this man? What do you say? What do you think about him? And the conclusion is that John, the blind guy is like, well, what do you think? I was blind my whole life, and now I can see does that give you any clue, you know? And, and there's this case around his identity. By the time we get to chapter 11 and he raises the dead, now everybody's on their heels, right? Who is this guy? What can make possible sense of this? And so it's, it is the climactic moment in the book of signs. But then what else is it, you guys? What is Lazarus's resurrection in the story that John is telling? It is. Yes, it is the four. Now there's no more signs. It is the last. It's not the. It's the penultimate sign. It's the second to last sign, and it foreshadows the greatest sign, which is going to be his own resurrection from the dead. Lazarus died. Lazarus was raised. Lazarus is dead again. Jesus died. Jesus was raised, and he will never die again. Jesus's resurrection is a better resurrection. To a certain extent, Lazarus' resurrection is more like resuscitation, okay? You know, his heart stops and he comes back to life, and it's a big deal. I don't mean to undersell it, but it is not as great as what Jesus is going to do. So Lazarus, at chapter 11, you read through the book, and you get to this thing, it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? And it lingers in your mind, it leaves this taste in your mouth that he can raise the dead, and then no more miracles until... He raises himself from the dead to reign forevermore over the cosmos. You follow the literary structure, this big thing, and then it just explodes at the end, okay? That's what, that's what John is doing. Kelly? Uh, I don't know if it's as clear in John as some of the other Gospels, but also the resurrection of Lazarus is, is kind of the set in stone point of the death of Jesus. Like, because he raised Lazarus and the Jews and Pharisees are really start to go after putting Jesus to death. 
That's right. Okay, so what Kelly's pointing out is there's this common event, and this is, it's true in the other synoptics as well, but what, what all of the authors point out is that every time Jesus does a miracle, it causes some people to say, man, this guy's amazing. And it causes other people to say, man, we got to kill this guy, right? And so when he raised, in John's gospel, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, that tears it. Like, enough's enough. Like, I don't know what this guy's next trick is going to be, but we're going to kill him before he does it, right? So you see, you'll see a similar feature. Uh, you know, Jesus heals a leper and it makes people mad. Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand and it makes people mad. Everything he does, it hastens his own death. But as John tells the story, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, I mean, like, people are like, well, of course, what are we going to do now? Like, we have to kill him. He's getting way, 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 way out of hand. Okay? Make sense? You with me on all that? Okay, so when you walk through, watch the, you're reading through the book of signs all through the first half, climax with uh, Lazarus being raised, foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection. And then the second half of the book, we call it the book of glory. So you got the book of signs, then you've got the book of glory. So if you decide to read it in two halves, read the front, you know, read, read up through Lazarus for, for the signs, and then read the re- second half for the glory. Um, and we'll probably talk more about, I'll probably save my thoughts on the book of glory for next week. And I'd love to hear yours as you read it yourself. But the one more thing I want you to see, because it's just John's favorite word. Open, the, open up your, your guide here. And I know this is terrible design because it's just so many words and there's no white space and it's just a disaster of a page, okay? But do you know what this is? It's every time John uses the word believe in his gospel. Isn't that extraordinary? Okay, over and over and over and over. He talked, okay, Ellen, what was the purpose of the book? Uh, that we would believe. Oh, that's right, right? He said, I write these things, right, so that you'll believe and absolutely, just listen, you just, I don't care what you look at. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Uh, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Believe me, the time is coming when you'll worship the Father, neither man. Uh, get down at the very bottom of that leftmost column. Um, the Father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your Son will live, so he and all his household believed. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. Um... I don't know, the middle of the middle, left, middle column. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. And then sometimes you'll see it's translated in English a little bit differently down in 830. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. In Greek, it's the same word for believe. Um, to the Jews who believed him. I mean, read through this. Just sit, sit down and take a minute or take 10 minutes and just read the entire, I, I did this this week and I read through this entire list, just staccato, boom, 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 believe, believe, believe. And I'll tell you what happened when I did. I was overwhelmed. Not only, oh, I get it. This is the thing that John is trying to make a point about because Jesus wants us to believe him. But rather, I was struck by how little I believe and how given I am to fear and worry and anxiety and unbelief. Do you, have you ever met anybody like that? He longs for us to trust him 
And he's like, I was just thinking, you guys remember when you're raising your children, how many of you fathers have ever stood in a pool like this <laughs> saying, just trust me. Like, do you really think I'm going to let you drown? Just jump, jump, come, just trust me. No, no, it's going to be fine. I've got you. Jump. You know that feature, right? And, we, and the kid stands around the edge like, yeah, maybe, and maybe not, but I don't know. They got the little floaties on their arms, right? That whole thing, like, that's what's happening here. He says, would you just look at my face? Look at my face. Would you trust me? Would you believe? Everything hangs on this. It is stunning how many times he says, believe, 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 believe. Now, I will say, John has lots of words that he likes to use over and over and over again. Love, world, truth, judgment. There's a whole bunch of terms that he just keeps going. Nothing is more preferable to him than the word believe. He says it over and over and over again. So as you go through, as you read through John this week, you might just, under, every time you see the word believe, just read this thing with a highlighter. You might read through it and underline, okay, here's one of the I am's, here's the uh, I am the, here's the believes. And just turn, my hope is that all of these things would eventually, you'd throw them away because they've all made their way into your actual Bible, right? So that these, you're making like an annotated Bible that has some of these things so that in Three years when you're reading through it and you forgot about this entire conversation, you'll be reminded in the margins, oh, that's right. And it will help you to not let your heart be troubled, that you would trust in God, you would trust also in Him, that you'd believe. Okay, so I think we're probably out of time. So read through it this week. Come back prepared to tell us something that you noticed that was intriguing, that was interesting. There's a little bit more here on the back, and we will look at the back page next week. I'll share with you. So I'll, you're welcome to read it if you want. There's all kinds of delicious things on the back. We'll talk about them next week along with your insights, and uh, we'll just see what God has for us in the book of John. All right, good enough? All right, see you then.